neural networks, random forests, unsupervised learning. These are just some of the concepts being researched and utilized in security today. But what do they mean? How do they work? And who are the people that create them? These are the questions and more we'll explore in Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft. In each episode, we'll deep dive into the newest security research, threat intel, and data science with a special focus on demystifying AI and machine learning. And we'll profile the diverse and fascinating people working on security at Microsoft. Listen and subscribe to Security Unlocked, available now wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with their latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds. They automatically adjust on each side to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Rashna Sojani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, which in just six years has reached an astonishing 90,000 girls in all 50 states, teaching them to code and closing the gender gap in technology, at least on the way to closing (laughs) the gender gap. She was also the first Indian-American woman to run for Congress and was named one of Fortune's World's Greatest Leaders. She's the best-selling author of two books, Girls Who Code and Women Who Don't Wait in Line. She hosts a podcast called Brave Not Perfect, and she lives in New York City with her husband, Nihal, their son, Sean, and their bulldog, Stanley. (laughs) Rashna, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to be here, Ariana. Thank you for all you are doing and this incredibly important issue. And I want to start with something personal. You know, you're so incredibly busy, not just with Girls With Code, but you host a podcast, you're an active angel investor, you've got a 13-book series to do. (laughs) How do you work time for yourself into your schedule? Ah, I struggle with it. When I had my son, one of my best friends told me, every new mom gets to pick one thing and make sure you pick it and stick with it because everybody else will eat up all your time. And it was such great advice for my friend Deepa. Um, And so I picked working out. And she said, you know, pick the thing at the most inconvenient time for everybody. So I picked it at 7.30 every day when Stanley, my dog, wants to go out, when my son (laughs) is waking up, right, when my house is basically being activated. Like that's when I picked my me time so that everybody understood, including myself, that I was going to put myself first and not always put everybody else before me. At one moment in the day. And how do they cope? You know, uh... Let's start with your husband, (laughs) and then you'll tell us about the dog. So I think that it was hard for him because he likes to sleep in, and I'm a morning person, so he enjoyed... You know, it worked for him that I would be the person that was up and getting everything ready, so he didn't love it. The dog didn't love it because, you know, she knew that I would also be the one that would actually take her out, and and my son didn't love it because this (laughs) was the time, right, that we spent time together. And I still do it, you know, four times a week. And look, I could go after work. I could go wake up at five in the morning like I know some moms do. But I knew that I had to establish a place in my house where everybody understood that it was okay for me to take time for myself. And do people understand that what they tell us on airplanes is actually true? Put on your own oxygen mask first before... (laughs) you help others, that there's actually a real science behind that, that it's not selfish, that it's not self-indulgent. Do you think people understand that? No. 
I, especially think women don't understand that because I think that we have been taught from the time that we're young to put everybody else first, to be polite, to be nice, to be caring, to be loving, to be selfless. And I think that that is amplified uh, once you have a child or you're caring for somebody. And so it's definitely something that I still struggle with. I feel guilty. I'm going on a vacation with my girlfriends next week for the first time for like, a, a you know, five days. I'm going to Italy on a girl's oh. trip. And I feel really guilty about it. I'm excited as hell. <laughs> but I am still, you know, there's a piece of me that feels like, you know, is that selfish? Don't you think, though, that every working mother feels perpetually guilty? I really think that they take the baby out and they put the guilt in. Yeah. And I know I have two daughters and I had to really keep struggling with this guilt. So yeah. it would be great to just help each other mm-hmm. to stop feeling guilty. Yeah. How do we do that? I think we need tactics and strategies like this one. And I share this with other folks too. And I, Because every single woman I know feels this way. They've married these progressive husbands, right? They have the kid and they thought that their life was going to be really different. And they wait, come home every day miserable because they have no time for themselves. Either they've let themselves go, they don't sleep anymore, they're not meditating, they're not exercising, they're constantly have anxiety and stress. And I think it's because they don't at all have a moment in time for themselves. And so it's really something that we have to have a more honest conversation about. I really think that if we have that more honest conversation, it's not just going to be good for the women, good for their marriage, good for their children, but also... Good for the culture, Mm. because I think one of the reasons it's hard is because we are swimming in this culture that thinks that burnout is the price you pay for success, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's really prevalent with young women. I feel like every 30-year-old woman I know is quitting her job, is totally exhausted, is seeing a therapist in hopes that they will tell them to do, is reading their horoscope incessantly. Like, it's a real thing. Because they did everything they thought that they were supposed to do. To be happy. To be happy. And they're not happy. And, and they why, have, why the horoscope? <laughs> it's a real thing, Ariana. I think because they want answers. They want answers. They want someone to tell them that it's going to be okay. Right? That everything that they have sacrificed is worth it. And so horoscopes are like a real thing amongst millennial women right now. And so are therapists, right? Instead of... They're going to therapy so that they can actually tell them what direction to take in their career. And as you know, when you go to therapists, they actually try, don't tell you what to do. You're supposed to figure it out. So there's a real epidemic. I mean, even, you know, on the more serious side of this, I mean, there's a rising suicide epidemic with young women. And I think all of it leads to this, right? From the time that they are 12 or 13 or teenage girls, right? They think they're supposed to have the size two and the perfect body and get the straight A's and be the captain of the cheerleader team and study 12 hours a day and then, you know, still make sure that their Snapchat filters are put in place, right? Or their Instagram, you know, feed is perfectly curated. And then they think, well, all of this to get to college. And then when I get to college, I can take a breath. And they get to college and they realize it starts all over again. And then when they get the job, they realize that it starts all over again. It's this never-ending cycle where you feel like you can't even take a breath. So when you bring kids, Mm. girls, into Girls Who Code, do you also give them some keys on how to navigate this life? Yeah. I mean, I think we're teaching them about bravery and about resilience and about sisterhood. See, I think what happens, Ariana, oftentimes we think we're the only one. I'm the only one who feels this way. 
So when you're put in this classroom of other girls who are having similar anxiety or questions about themselves or their confidence, they realize they're not the only one. It's not lonely anymore. And I think that in and of itself is incredibly healing. But it's also creating a space where people can share these stories because yeah. you could be in the same space physically, yeah. but not share your anxieties. Yeah. So do you create an emotional space where these stories can be shared? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the physical space plus learning something new, right? So all of these girls are learning how to code, something that they thought that they could never do or wouldn't be able to do. And they're all failing and going through failure at the same time. So it becomes very cathartic. In so many of my classrooms, we've had girls who have come out for the first time, you know, who had really meaningful or who've shared that they've been raped, right? Or share that they've been cutting themselves. Like really deeply personal, emotional challenges that have happened to them. Or they're coming into the classroom from those experiences. And something happens that's magical. In learning how to code, it's interesting, right? That like, that brings out humanity and compassion. Because, you know, we forget teenage girls are not often very nice to each other. So you kind of see them on the first day of these very kind of hardened <laughs> creatures, right? They're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to her. And they end after seven weeks totally in love with one another and totally in this beautiful partnership, in this community. It's incredible to watch. That is amazing. Yeah. And is one of the ways that they get there, the fact that they're trying something very new, something mm-hmm. they didn't think they could achieve. And that something happens they didn't expect? Yes. And I think they've, and the fact that they've achieved success. I mean, failure is very healing. I mean, you think about this in in terms of weight loss communities, right? You have a bunch of people come together. They have something that they think they've never be able to do. And they're sharing kind of their successes and their setbacks together. And they're ending up with some success. Mm. It's, It's a similar type of feeling, right? where I think so much about coding because it's so iterative is, again, teaching you confidence in your ability to be imperfect and to fail and to try and to learn something you thought you'd never be able to do. Yes, that's why I love the whole brave, not Mm -hmm. perfect mission that you have. And how did you get there? Mm. Uh, Well, I got asked to do a TED Talk and they told me to say something new. (laughs) (laughs) So it was actually probably writing that TED Talk was one of the most painful things I've ever had to do. Because I knew that there was an easy way out, like I could just do my normal stump speech. But I also feel like as a feminist and as an activist, I'm so damn tired with the fact that women's leadership numbers haven't changed. And I wanted to see, like in my experience running Girls Who Code, what have I seen? What have I felt that is happening amongst young girls that maybe can unlock some of what's happening with us? And what I learned in watching them learn how to code is that we all suffer from perfectionism. And it's taught to us like at 30 months from the time where, you know, our dresses are straightened and our bows are fixed and our nails are cleaned and we're taught to be quiet and not speak too loud and make sure we share toys. All of those behaviors, right, lead to us growing up as these women who are so confined by accolades, by perfection, by doing the things that we think that we're good at and being afraid of the things that we think that we're not good at. And it stunted us, and it's kept us back from actually having really joyful lives. I am, um, you know, I spoke at, at the wing yesterday, and for me, I realized up until the time that I was 33, I did everything right. I went to all the top schools. I went to all the right companies. I did everything to make my parents happy. 
put all those notches on my book to have that perfect resume. And I woke up at age 33 coming home from every work drinking, you know, drinking a bottle of red wine because I was so miserable at my job. And I was like, how could this have happened? I did everything. Why aren't I happy? I realized that like by running for office and losing and not dying, <laughs> that it was at, I was more happier trying something and failing than doing all the things I thought I was supposed to do. So I'm, to me, it's about how do you get that mission or that lesson, right, to women? And it's not about, you know, leaning in and getting the job. It's about living a more joyful life and having no regrets. I love that. I'm such a big believer. And I was lucky to have a mother who really believed that. And she taught me that failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success and being willing to take risks and all the things that you teach the girls. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you had to learn it at 33 and now you're helping teenage girls learn it much earlier. Yeah. And I still learn it. Listen, I have setbacks too. I, I mean, I was in a spinning class the other day and I was looking at the woman next to me and she was doing everything so right and I felt like a fool. You know, and so I think we're, we're always oh yeah, we're all hard on progress. ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number. Because sleep makes the difference for a thriving mind, body and soul. Today's sleep tip is to create a gratitude list. It's a great way to focus your mind on the good things in your life, big and small, rather than on the running list of unresolved problems that seem to take center stage once our head hits the pillow. Before bed, write a list with pen and paper of what you're grateful for. It's an easy way to make sure your blessings get the closing scene of the night and shifts the spotlight onto the good things in our lives. And recent studies have shown that this type of gratitude exercise will help you reduce stress and sleep better. There is something to be grateful for. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number, the bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. I love that you post on Instagram as part of Failure Friday that part of learning how to be brave is trying something new. Mm. And for you, that's learning how to surf. Yes. That's brave. (laughs) Especially when I don't swim. <laughs> yes. It's so how fun. is that going? It's going. I, f- I finally got on the, the surfboard uh, last weekend. It was amazing. The first time I went surfing, I literally was crying. My instructor was like, you got to get in the water. I, like, I don't want to go in the water. I mean, it was brutal. And I was, you know, I, I couldn't <laughs> get on the board. I was watching like literally this five-year-old do like a headstand on a surfboard next to me. I felt like a fool. But I didn't give up. And I kept trying. And, you know, I realized at 40 that I have stopped doing new things. Someone asked me what my hobby was. I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I have one anymore. And so I realized that I missed, you know, when you're young and you're like riding a bike or doing something for the first time, how how, I see this by having a son, like when he's like doing new things and he's so joyful and learning something new. And I realized I haven't had that feeling in a long time. And I wanted to start feeling that again. So I kind of made a commitment to start trying to do new things that I was scared of Mm. that I had kind of told myself that I actually couldn't do. So I'm on a journey. So have you thought of farming girls who serve? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I have so much time. Um, No, I really love it. I don't know if you've done it. It's it's pretty, uh, it's fun. It's hard. 
Yes, I have not done it. So I have to find something else to do that is new. <laughs> I actually had the same experience when I was trying to learn to ski, of mm. seeing a five-year-old practically doing headstand on, on their skis. Right. That, that made me feel equally inadequate. So I know exactly what you mean. Now, going on to Girls Who Code, what I love is that the idea actually came to you while you were campaigning. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that because out of something that didn't work, yeah, running for Congress, yeah. something amazing was born. Yeah, I know. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when you, when you run for office, you go into a lot of schools. You're asked to visit schools and talk. And I would go into New York City public schools, and I really saw the gender divide in classrooms. And so when I lost, I knew I didn't want to go back into the private sector. I mean, even though I was broke, I was like, I'm not going back. <laughs> And that I wanted to do something good. And my parents came here as refugees. I've had a job since I was 12, from like Baskin Robbins to like Subway. So I've always been very committed to creating opportunity for other girls and for other people who don't have it. And so when I looked at all of these jobs that were open and that you made $120,000, I thought to myself, like, we, we can't leave girls behind. Like, why are we leaving girls behind? And so when I... Girls Who Code in many ways started for the first year and a half as I was going out there talking to people and trying to learn what was happening in this space. Were there programs for girls? Were they, you know, gender-specific classrooms? What were we teaching them? What did they look like? And I just found that there wasn't really anything. So I started it as a pilot and, you know, thought Girls Who Code, that's a great name. You know, went on GoDaddy.com, bought it for like $1.99, borrowed a friend's conference room, handpicked my first 20 girls, convinced this amazing woman, Leanne Suttle, to help design my first curriculum. And I just did it, not really having the intention of either building a nonprofit or building a movement. And those first 20 girls just blew my mind because most of them were poor. Most of them didn't have computers at home. And they shouldn't have made it, but they did. And the problems that they wanted to solve were things that were affecting them. Like, Some of the girls were undocumented, so they wanted to educate people about what was happening in their community. Some of them, you know, were from communities in Queens where the local bodegas and the women that were running them didn't have any websites. And so when Sandy happened, their businesses were decimated, so they wanted to help them. You know, one of the girls' father had cancer, and so she wanted to build an algorithm to help detect whether a cancer was benign or malignant. But there was so much love in their hearts and so much compassion that I thought that, wow, like, I didn't win my race to Congress, but like, what if these girls actually build these products? Like, that's how I can change the world. Maybe not through me, but through them. And it was just like a light bulb, you know, that went off in my head and in my heart. Uh, And it became so clear, like what I was meant to do. I loved being at your annual dinner this year and, and seeing some of the girls Mm. and their passion and exactly what you said, how much humanity Mm-hmm. They bring into coding mm-hmm. because we think of coding as something that is not about our humanity. And the examples you gave and the examples I heard that night are so much yeah. about using technology to kind of enhance our humanity. Right, right. I mean, I think women bring a different perspective. I remember in my the second year, uh, two of our girls built a game called Tampon Run because <laughs> they wanted to actually educate people about the menstruation taboo. And they thought a game was the best way to do it. And look, Ariana, like no boy was going to build tampon run, right? No boy's like, ah, the menstruation taboo. Let me do something about it. So 
and I think there are so many things that happen on a daily basis that affect us or affect women or affect our communities that if you don't have women as innovators and creators, you're simply not going to solve. But you've also spoken passionately about the need for men to be allies. Yes, huge. We are, you know, 12 million strong movement because of the men who have lifted us up to. We have so many dads who are like, they see what happens with their daughters and they're not going to put up with it. You know, so many partners or spouses or brothers. We have, you know, 40% of the teachers that volunteer in our program are men. So I think that this generation of men, they're part of the sisterhood, a critical part of the sisterhood. I have more confidence that we're going to be able to solve this problem because we're not doing it by ourselves. And you are also encouraging girls who code when they graduate yeah. and get jobs yeah. uh, to not hide the fact that they mm. may also be mothers. Mm-hmm. Or, as you said once, they may be on a conference call yeah. and have a baby yeah. crying yeah. in the background. Yeah. How is that message being received? I think it's being received very well. I think you have to bring your whole self to your job, right, and to who you are. I think that that's where we're going, and I think that that's why I think our programs are so important because it's beyond the coding, right? It's about teaching the girls how to bring their authentic self, to be brave, to be resilient, right, and to to not hide from who they are. And I think they're going to bring that in, they're bringing that into the classroom in college and they're going to bring that into the workspace. And you're working now with a lot of Silicon Valley yeah. companies. You're getting yeah. more and more support from yeah. them, which is a sign of the incredible impact you've already yeah. had. So what would you like them to know? Yeah. How would you like them to change the workplace? Yeah. You know, I think when we started, companies wanted to stand with us. And I think now companies support us because we're actually solving a problem for them, you know, a pipeline problem. They're actually hiring our girls. The thing that I would love for us to do is not wait. Like, we don't have to wait 50 years, 100 years. We can do this in five, 10, worst case. But that means that we have to be more intentional about our impact. So, for example, Ariana, when I get an email from a girl who said, I just applied to Google or Facebook or whatever company, I didn't get that internship and I look at her resume and I look at her grades, I send an email to said company and said, why didn't you hire her? So I make a list now, right? <laughs> and, then, and when Rush and Johnny starts making a list, it's not a good thing for you. But like, I think we have to be very intentional about it, right? Because the numbers are so bad that you can actually make that kind of impact very quickly. It's the same conversation I have with universities now. So you, know, you have some university departments that have 100 people in their computer science department. Let's say 20% are women. And we know that you have to cross 30% to actually change the culture of an organization. So I'm asking these universities, you know, you put millions of dollars in your football programs to recruit, to have recruiters out there in every single town, county, and parish finding talent. Why aren't you doing that in your CS departments? And we need, I think we need the Bill Gates and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world to actually invest in universities in the way that we have people invest in our football teams to find those women and to find those people of color because we can find them. Like this is something that we can solve in a generation. And quite frankly, I don't think we have a choice, not just because we're missing out on innovation, but if we as an economy want to help women prosper who are now the breadwinners of many families, these are the jobs. These are the ones. Obama said this, the last (laughs) jobs to go will be the people programming the computers. It's just true. I know, but at the same time, helping solve human problems. That's what we need to make that connection. 
Yes. But the two things are not separate. Yes. And that's why you are so uniquely able to speak about coding and speak about emotional intelligence mm. and speak about religion and not keep these things in separate compartments. Yeah. yeah. So let's go from coding to religion. Okay. <laughs> because um, faith and religion have been very important to you. Very important to me. So you've, you are tasked with finding out what your dharma is mm-hmm. in Hinduism. And yeah. I... I Studied comparative religion yeah. in Shantaniketan University outside Calcutta when I was 17. Yeah. And it's had a profound effect on me. Yeah. So tell us about the concept of Dharma and what's yours. Yeah. I mean, Dharma is about like, what has God put you on this earth to do? So, you know, in Hinduism, we have a strong sense of giving back and, you know, learning the lessons that you need to learn in this life or the next one. And I think from the time that I was young, I've had a very strong sense and feeling that my dharma is about giving back. And I always thought that that was going to be through public service. And when I ran for office and ran for office and ran for office and lost, I kept coming back to Girls Who Code. So, you know, it's clear to me that in this life, my contribution is in girls and in equity and in education. Because every time I try to run for it, (laughs) run from it, it comes back to me. I think that that's the journey in life is to really having that sense of clarity. of Like, what are you put on this earth to do? Because each of us have our dharma. And what is great that even though you are clear that your dharma is about service, mm. you're also becoming increasingly clear that you're going to be better at serving if you also serve yourself. Yeah, and I think that that's been a struggle because I still think that we're taught, especially for me as a daughter of immigrants, to be selfless um, and that it's a, it's a luxury, mm-hmm. right, to think about your own self-care and your own self-health. It's funny, I was actually having a conversation with someone close to me about this, is that, you know, when you're in the space of helping others, it's hard to pat yourself on the back because when you're in the business of justice, your work is never done. And that's why I think that a lot of activists and people in my world really burn out Mm -hmm. and are really bad at self-care because they're never really given permission to be joyful about what they've achieved. And I definitely suffer from that. Like, I don't, my husband always tells me this. He's like, you know, you've accomplished a lot in your life right now. And I never feel that way. Um, In some ways, that is my drive. That drives me, right? But in some ways, that's my Achilles heel because then I never give myself a break. And when you've taken care of yourself, is it easier to acknowledge what you've done and feel joyful about it? Yes. Yes. And so I think I'm able to do the celebration a little bit better. Whereas I think when I'm not, you know, because we also have a, we live in a culture of basically just success, right? And so you're moving on from one goal to the next goal to the next goal to the next goal without stopping to say, oh, wow, we did that. And I think, again, when you're in the social justice work, you think you're not supposed to do that. So, yeah, I think having time off uh, makes it easier to do that. I also think giving yourself permission to have fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't give ourselves really permission to have fun, you know, in the same way because we think we need to be on to the next thing. And I need to remind myself of that. It's often my New Year's resolution. Have more fun. <laughs> I love that. Yes, mine was um, at some point just recognizing that Time off can simply mean getting enough sleep. Mm. How are you doing in the sleep department? You changed my life. I grew up reading about Bill Clinton. 
and about how successful he was because he didn't sleep. So I always felt guilty about sleep until I read your book. And I knew deep down inside that I was someone when I got eight or eight and a half hours of sleep, I was just more effective. But again, that didn't gel from everything I had learned about being ambitious. That sleep has been a game changer for me. And yeah, and I need to be in time. Like I used to do red eyes all the time, right? Because I'm like, oh, I can sleep, but I don't do them anymore because I know that I need to be committed to getting my sleep. And it's game changing. And of course, even Bill Clinton has now acknowledged it. He said that the biggest mistakes he made in his life were when he was tired. (laughs) We don't want to ask what mistakes, but (laughs) it shows that. People who they celebrated their sleeplessness, who lived by the motto, I'll sleep when I'm dead, are now realizing that, in yeah. fact, we are more effective yeah. when we prioritize that part of our well-being. And related to that is a growing awareness, and it's particularly interesting because of what you're doing, of the need to set boundaries in our relationship with technology with our phone, with social media, with games, with all the things that are continuously invading our lives. How are you reconciling that growing recognition with your dharma of getting more and more people to code? Right. So I've been trying to listen to myself, and and I know that when I pick up my phone right away in the morning, it just, it doesn't start my day right. I think there's a distinction between being a consumer of technology and being a creator of one, right? And so I do think that we have to be more thoughtful about our consumption and we need to consume less, period, right? I I see them both in that sense aligned, right? So have you thought of actually introducing a way to help your girls? Yeah. I wonder, you know, it's interesting because I think this is a much bigger narrative this year. In our summer programs, our girls actually come up with ideas I would not be surprised this year if we see more ideas from girls about how to self-regulate their exposure And how to even to create tech that helps yeah, us uh, do that, um, you know, maximize our own life and yeah. not allow it to be consumed by tech. It's kind of a paradox. Yeah. But I think some of the most interesting apps and uh, yeah. features right now are about helping us manage our relationship yeah. with tech better, like Google's digital well-being. Yeah. Who would have predicted that, that, they, would do that. that well, they would do that? And I love what you do at Thrive about like having a system to turn off your email when you go on vacation. So when you're on vacation, you don't even can't be tempted to even check. Things like that, I think, are going to be mandatory now because you're seeing a lot more conversation about people being like, I need a break from social media. Yes. Right? Like it's really affecting our happiness. Yes, of course, that's our priority. Yeah. I have to create products mm-hmm. that help us manage our relationship with technology while celebrating right. all that technology has allowed us to do. And uh, the age at which girls uh, join girls um, who code yeah. is particularly vulnerable yeah. to being absorbed by social media. Do you find that? A thousand percent. I mean, I have my, my new book is coming out in February and I did a bunch of focus groups and I learned that so many young women have two Instagram accounts. One that's public to curate the life that they think that everybody thinks that they should have. And one's for themselves. Can you imagine that? And it's a real, real thing. And so I think that like the, you know, there is some toxicity with, I mean, my niece told me that if she doesn't get 500 likes on a post, she deletes it. So she deletes a memory of her life 
because she didn't get enough affirmation. Uh, for would it. she write about it? <laughs> I can ask because, her. She's know, actually coming with me for a month. I will ask her because she we are, we are trying to have this conversation yeah. on our media platform mm. to actually discuss why would people have two accounts and yeah. is the personal account does it have a more realistic a yeah. fuller view of somebody's life so the the one that's curated for people is is the one the life like sort of one of the women i had interviewed had said you know i went on vacation to italy and i posted all these amazing pictures and people liked it so much that i thought that i had to be the italy vacation girl so then i my instagram you know feed had to be these beautiful curated pictures of me having this amazing luxurious <laughs> life but i'm not that girl i'm the girl on the ponytail right that's like has her sweatpants on so then I started my own real account, which is private, which is for my friends, that shows who I really am. But she still feels like she has to maintain both of them. That Think is, about like the stress. Oh, that but, is amazing. I mean, full confession here is that even for me, I like if I post something and I, my failure Fridays, I look all the time. How many likes do I get? 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 And I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? But it's addictive. It is addictive, and it's deliberately addictive. Yeah, I mean, right. it's not by accident. Right. You right. know, the entire uh, algorithms that are encouraging us to to be more addicted mm-hmm. to what we post and how well it's doing. But and you actually have Sean, yeah. who is a preschooler. Yeah. Uh, he has a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. My husband, literally <laughs> in the delivery room, like my husband was outside and got him his Twitter account before we like signed the papers. It was the first thing he did. And he has 200 followers. Yes, he's very well-liked. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we struggle with, uh, you know, we never wanted to be that parent, right? We So in our culture, and we, t- you know, he comes everywhere with us. Our parents raised us that way, right? Where you kind of bring your child yeah, everywhere. Sure. Right. So, but there are times where we want to have a dinner and talk and have a glass of wine. And so we'll put the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put on the Netflix or the YouTube for kids. And, you know, so we, we struggle too, as both technologists about what the relationship of our son is going to have with technology. I don't know the answer yet. But I hope by the time he is old enough to be given a phone, we have resolved a lot of these issues. I mean, there's definitely a new awakening, don't you feel, this year? Yes. And listen, I have gotten in the habit of meditating with my son every night because he saw me meditating, so he wants to do it. But he picks up my phone, opens up Simple Habit, clicks, scrolls, finds bedtime for kids, clicks, puts it on, lays down. I kid you not, he's three. That's amazing. Well, that's a positive use of technology. (laughs) (laughs) When he scrolls down and finds Fortnite, that's another story. (laughs) Well, you're at this amazing moment in your life when you are impacting so many people and openly talking about your own journey Mm. and um, recognizing that you, like me, like all of us, are works in progress and there is no highlight reel, really. So I just want to say how grateful I am for what you are doing, for being here on the podcast, and for all that's coming, because there is um, a long life ahead, and uh, I'm excited you're on this life and that you have the dharma you have. <laughs> well, I want to say thank you to you, too. I mean, you're such a role model for so many of us, and you, you walk the talk. There have been moments in my life where I've asked you for advice, and you've given me your time and your wisdom, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being our guest. And now to everyone, be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. 
and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. Thank you. The Thrive Global Podcast is grateful to our sponsor, Sleep Number. If you aren't sleeping well, it could be your mattress. The Sleep Number bed lets you adjust each side to your ideal comfort, and it contours to your head, neck, shoulders, and hips, relieving pressure points. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Walmart believes every community should be a healthy community. That's why they've built a nationwide network of 59,000 healthcare professionals who help them care for the communities they serve. Last year, their pharmacists administered millions of flu shots, and now they're preparing more than 5,000 Walmart and Sam's Club locations to administer the COVID-19 vaccine. Because Walmart isn't just in your community, they're part of it. Learn more at walmart.com slash COVID vaccine. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.